In the Israelites' 40-year trek through the desert, no single event was more defining than when God carved the Ten Commandments. For years, the Ten Commandments hung on the walls of almost every evangelical church. Not so much today. Have they become less important? Or is it possible we've downgraded their status? Coming up, a stimulating conversation with Dr. Al Mohler on the Ten Commandments. This is The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East scholar and author, conference speaker, and a guy that uh, has never grown tired of learning from the land of Israel. I'm John Geiger. Good to connect with you, Charlie. John, it's always great talking to you, and I'm glad to be with you. And on this opening segment, we're taking a look at current events that you're seeing online on television right now based in the Middle East. Story number one being our election over, of course, but Israel might be looking at another election of its own in the not-too-distant future. What are the issues pushing Israel toward early elections? Well, there are really three issues seem to be pushing them toward these new elections. Uh, The first is the budget. Part of the initial coalition agreement was the promise to form a two-year budget for 2020 and 2021, but Netanyahu hasn't followed through on that agreement, claiming a lack of cooperation from his coalition partners. Originally, the budget was to be passed in the first 100 days of the coalition. At the last minute, the deadline was pushed back from August 25 to December 23. Blue and white leader Gantz has said that if Netanyahu doesn't honor the new date and pass a budget by then, the government will automatically dissolve and new elections will be held in March. The second issue is the question of mandatory military service for ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students. Uh, This has been a a contentious issue uh, for quite a while now. Israel's High Court of Justice has ruled that the government only has till February 1 to pass acceptable legislation that would exempt certain students from mandatory military service. Now, if no law is passed, then all ultra-Orthodox Jews would be conscripted like other Israelis. The ultra-Orthodox parties, who are part of the coalition, oppose requiring such service, while more secular parties feel it's unfair to exempt the ultra-Orthodox while requiring everyone else to serve. If the coalition can somehow survive the budget crisis, this issue could fracture it. And then finally, the bribery and corruption trial of Prime Minister Netanyahu is scheduled to resume in January. Hmm. The next attorney general has placed limits on Prime Minister Netanyahu's powers during the trial. Uh, These include not allowing him to appoint the next attorney general or anyone else in the government who might be able to influence the proceedings. Uh, Netanyahu is also barred from being involved in any legislation that could impact the trial. The effect of all this has been to embolden the opposition. Thousands of Israelis have been holding weekly protests demanding that he step down. Now, none of this automatically means Israel is going to be heading to new elections. But it does mean Israel is entering a very contentious time that could cause the current coalition to collapse. Story number two, Halloween. It took place two weeks ago, but Israel seems to be living its own version of a cheesy Hollywood horror movie. That would be the cable car that won't die. Charlie, what are the latest twists and turns in the ongoing plot to build a cable car in Jerusalem? You know, John, if this were a horror movie, it would start with a man carrying a chainsaw heading to the western hill of Jerusalem and then starting to slash at trees, not people. Despite the ongoing court case that certainly looks like it was going to derail the project, well, the project director said work will start in the next week or so to prepare for the construction of the cable car. Uh, This includes cutting down trees along the cable car's route. 
Uh, the authority responsible for the project won approval from the agriculture ministry to begin removing those trees. Uh, it also includes moving existing water, sewage, and telecommunications equipment to prepare for the construction of the three stations along the route. In the legal arena, uh, the government submitted an 81-page document presenting its arguments for building the cable car. Those opposed have another week to submit their responses, but in the meantime, the government decided it's moving forward with its plans. Now, for those who might not remember, the reasons being given to build this cable car are that it would ease traffic congestion around the old city and promote tourism. The problem is that it won't really accomplish either goal. It only moves part of the traffic problem from the area around the Dungate to the area of the old train station. And in fact, even if tourists ride the cable car, if you go to the train station and take the cable car, well, your bus still needs to drive around Jerusalem uh, to pick you up at the other end. It's doubtful that any additional tourists will come to Jerusalem just to ride the cable car. Uh, those planning to come will show up whether or not there's a cable car running. So in the meantime, I think this proposal will make the old city look less like the city of David and more like the city of Mickey Mouse. And uh, <laughs> you can ask me, John, how I really feel about the project, but uh, man, it's just one that won't die. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. The first of four segments is what you're hearing right now. This one where we devote our attention to unfolding stories in the Middle East. The next segment, by the way, a fascinating conversation with Al Mohler. Words from the Fire, a look at the Ten Commandments. Story number three, Israeli archaeologists claim to be recovering the lost legacy of a cursed biblical king. What's behind this attempt to prove that King Manasseh was greater than King Hezekiah? Uh, this is a case that illustrates what happens when presuppositions influence archaeologists. Uh, the claims are coming from the archaeologists at Tel Aviv University. Uh, they're the ones who champion the idea that the Bible is a poor reflection of history, that David and Solomon were only mythological figures invented at a much later date, and that uh, some kings that the Bible calls evil or wicked were actually pretty good. Uh, they're now arguing the significance of Hezekiah and Manasseh and saying uh, they should be reversed that Manasseh was by far the greater of the two kings. As Israel Finkelstein, the lead archaeologist, said, for the Bible, Hezekiah was a great wise king and Manasseh was the worst of all. Archaeology shows the exact opposite. Hezekiah carelessly brought destruction upon Judah with his revolt, while Manasseh is the one who saved it. Now, here's the reality. No major building programs have been identified with Manasseh. But the Bible and archaeology both agree when they describe Hezekiah constructing you know, the Pool of Siloam, digging Hezekiah's tunnel to bring the water there from the Gihon Spring. They also agree in describing the wall built around the western hill that tripled the size of the walled city of Jerusalem. Two items in this report, John, show the presuppositions of the archaeologists. First, they claim that Hezekiah, as they said, it carelessly brought destruction upon Judah with his revolt. And then they note that under Hezekiah, Jerusalem barely escaped destruction. In fact, they added after it, it's not clear how they did that. Mm. Well, they've taken a purely secular view of history. It disregards all the biblical evidence. The Bible clearly says Jerusalem was spared because the angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in response to Hezekiah's prayer. Uh, the Bible does present Hezekiah's flaws and failures, but it still says there was no king like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. Hmm. 
In contrast, it was Manasseh who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He reinstituted the idolatrous practices that Hezekiah had stamped out. He offered one of his own children as a human sacrifice. God ultimately announced Judah would be destroyed by Babylon because of all the evil things Manasseh did. So here's that question. Archaeology shows an invasion of Judah in the time of Hezekiah. The nation was decimated militarily, but ultimately spared by God. And the peace that Hezekiah helped secure brought about some degree of quiet and prosperity during the reign of Manasseh. However, Manasseh's moral wickedness guaranteed Judah's ultimate destruction. So which of those two kings is greater? Well, the answer depends on whether or not you accept the record of the Bible. These archaeologists automatically reject it, and that's why their conclusions are so off-base. Yeah, and even in this story, Charlie, we come back to that very fundamental question, whose God is God? That's exactly right. Imagine combining aeronautics, robotics, and artificial intelligence to harvest fruit. That's exactly what a company in Israel has set out to do. Tell us about this new system being developed in Amazing Israel. Yeah, this is a fascinating story. Most people don't realize that worldwide, 10% of the fruit on trees rots before it can be picked. Hmm. Harvest time is, is quite stressful as farmers try to hire additional workers and then coordinate the picking and packing of the crops in a relatively short span of time. And that's where Tevel Aerobotics Technologies comes in. This startup was founded by veterans of Israel's aerospace and electronics industries. They've developed an autonomous driving platform with several tethered robots that fly up and pick the fruit off the trees. Having the robots tethered to the vehicle solves the problem of short battery life. Using artificial intelligence, the robots are able to pick only the fruit that's ripe. The robot drones pick the fruit and place it in containers. They also provide a constant update on how many pounds of fruit have been picked, how much time it'll take to finish the harvesting of the remaining fruit. Uh, These flying robots are more accurate than human harvesters. They can work longer hours, and they're available when the job needs to be done. The system's still in the testing phases, but the company hopes to introduce it to the global market shortly. Uh, A 21st century way to pick fruit. Hmm. It sure sounds like the kind of innovation that we come to expect from Amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events. Thank you, Charlie. A full program yet ahead. Al Moeller looking at words from the fire. A conversation about the Ten Commandments. Your questions, Charlie's answers, plus a devotional all ahead on the land and the book. Most of us have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston plays Moses, and the screenplay is truly epic, more than 60 years later. But what of that moment when the Ten Commandments are etched on the tablets by the finger of God? How could the people be so quick to disobey? And as importantly, how can you and I be so quick to disobey? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. Let's hold that thought on the Ten Commandments just for a moment longer as we consider creative ways to show the love of Yeshua to our Jewish friends. So you have built a relationship with a Jewish friend and you're wondering, you'd like to share Yeshua. Is that different, more intense, more difficult than witnessing to a non-Jewish friend? Let's ask an expert, Beth Tavlin, on the administrative staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. What's your experience, your thoughts, Beth? I would say that it's not any different than sharing with a non-Jewish person. 
I think we tend to think about a cultural discrepancy between us and another person, and it tends to discourage us or intimidate us. Mm -hmm. And I would say, don't be afraid, and maybe even don't even think about if they're Jewish or not. Just think about them as a person. Right. And what do they need? They need to know the Lord. So as I listen to you, Beth, what I think I'm hearing you saying is there's no need for sweaty palms, no need to get uptight, but there is a need to commit this thing to prayer and invite Jesus into this conversation if it's about him, right? Right. He wants us to be obedient and he will help us be obedient and we need to invite him into the process. Praying in the midst of sharing is very valuable. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Appreciate you giving us some thoughts there, Beth. She's with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. More to come here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Albert Moeller is the ninth president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Considered a leader among American evangelicals by Time and Christianity Today magazines, Dr. Moeller hosts two programs, The Briefing, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview, and Thinking in Public, a series of conversations with the day's leading thinkers. He also writes a popular blog and a regular commentary on moral, cultural, and theological issues. Dr. Moeller is the author of a number of books, including the Moody Publishers' release, Words from the Fire. He's appeared on national news programs such as CNN, Larry King Live, NBC, Today Show, and Dateline NBC. He and his wife, Mary, reside in Louisville, Kentucky, and have two children, Thanks for connecting with us today, Dr. Moeller. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You know, I can hear someone saying, why this book on the Ten Commandments? Come on, man, we live in the age of grace. What's your response? Well, we only know what grace is as uh, we learn of uh, God's gracious act in rescuing us from the law and the condemnation of the law. But at the same time, the moral law continues. And in the life of Christians, uh, Jesus handed down a law. From the Ten Commandments, you can make a direct jump to the Sermon on the Mount and understand that Jesus never said that the law would pass away. He said, indeed, not one jot or tittle would pass away until all has been fulfilled. And uh, there's a sense in which, of course, the law in its indictment of us was indeed fulfilled in Christ. But Christ intends his church to be governed by the uh, the principles that God set down. And uh, mm-hmm. so we, we still believe that we should have no other gods before him. You just go down the Ten Commandments, and there we are. You've written, I find it rather perplexing that many of those who seem most ardently committed to the posting of the Ten Commandments can neither recite them nor honestly affirm that they have taught them to their own children. Ouch. If that's true, and I don't argue that it is, what's the answer to your question? Is this simply a case of the theological pendulum of our day kind of swinging too far in the direction of grace? You know, in order to understand that, let me uh, let me think of the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who, uh, by the way, said that the preacher should never preach the law. The, he, he was the great uh, prophet, we might say, of the Reformation and the rediscovery of salvation through grace by faith and faith alone. And you should never preach the law. That would be failure and, and regression. But then he had a child. He had a little boy. And uh, he discovered that he actually did have to teach the law. 
<laughs> and it's because human beings need the restraining power of the law. Now, the law can't save us. That's the whole point. But the law does order our society and order our lives. And it used to be, and I mentioned Luther because Luther then put the Ten Commandments right there in the very beginning of his catechism for children. And we used to teach them to our children the same way that Israel was told to teach the commandments to their children. And uh, just to state the obvious, not teaching the Ten Commandments to our children has not been a good plan. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I like the way that uh, you have summarized each commandment in the book at the start of a given chapter. Example, the first commandment, no other God, no other voice. What do you think God might say to us today about this commandment? Well, you know, the very beginning point of God's self-revelation to us is what we call monotheism. There's only one God. And he comes back to that again and again and again. And that great commandment tells us that uh, we're not even to mention another God in his, in his presence. That's what it means by, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not a matter of priority. That's throne language. And he's saying, you don't bring any other, even the mention of the name of any other God before my throne. And uh, so we better be really careful, because we live in a society of many, many, many uh, idolatries. And by the way, not all of them have names like the ancient gods of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, mm-hmm. uh, but they're idols nonetheless. And so we, we have to be extremely careful about what I might call accidental idolatry. We're, we, we're, we're giving something else the allegiance that should belong to God alone. Yes. And uh, in, our, in our society, Christians just have to be a lot more thoughtful about the dangers of what we're warned about in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. He's been seen on national news programs such as CNN, Larry King Live, NBC's Today Show, Dateline NBC. He's Dr. Al Mohler, author of the Moody Publishers book, Words from the Fire. In your chapter on the Second Commandment, you write, we are natural-born idolaters. And it's good that we admit this up front. Now, I can understand the secular world going after idols, but why do we, uh, as we've already alluded to so far in this conversation, struggle so much in the church with idols? Well, just think about the Old Testament. I think one of the most shocking things about the honesty of the Old Testament is that even after the, uh, the, the great acts of God, you see Israel bringing idols back, whether it's a golden calf or, or you know, it's, a, it's, it's village idols smuggled into a knapsack. The mm-hmm. idols keep coming back, and uh, Israel has to be told over and over and over again that that is going to bring the judgment of God. And I think in every generation, it's as if we have to learn some of these lessons all over again. But, you know, it it makes me wonder how many churches, even on on the Lord's Day worship, are really, really clear about the God we are worshiping, in order that no one could misunderstand this God to be any other God than the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, the God revealed in Scripture. And in a lot of our services, there's not enough Scripture for anyone to find out which God is being talked about here. Hmm. Addressing the Seventh Commandment, you have summarized why adultery is about much more than sex. Elaborate just a little bit. Well, remember that God places human sexuality in the context of a covenant. And uh, it's not just two bodies coming together, male and female. It is two persons coming together, and the only legitimate coming together is in the covenant of marriage. And a covenant of marriage is never to be broken, any more than any other covenant is to be broken. It's a sacred vow, and God made that vow to Israel, and uh, needless to say, 
Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant vow was not treated lightly. Just remember the prophet Hosea, where Israel's disobedience to God is described as adultery. So adultery is a matter of the soul, not just of the body. It's a violation of the most basic promise and vow. And uh, there are horrifying consequences to that. Dr. Al Mohler writes a popular blog and a regular commentary on moral, cultural, and theological issues. He's written a number of books, including the Moody Publishers' release, Words from the Fire. What about the commandment to keep the Sabbath? Now, some point out that this commandment is not apparently repeated in the New Testament. Your take. Well, I think in Hebrews 4, we have the explanation. It's because we're told Christ is our Sabbath. And so, uh, and we're actually told we find our Sabbath rest in Christ. And so there's a sense in which the Sabbath as an institution has been fulfilled. But at the same time, the New Testament tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So it is interesting. There's kind of a switch in emphasis uh, between the Sabbath in the Old Testament and the Lord's Day, as it's called in the New Testament. The Sabbath was defined primarily about what we were not to do, mm-hmm. um, and that is any labor. Uh, but the, the Lord's Day is defined by what we are to do in priority, and that is to gather together for the worship of the one true and living God. And so uh, the commandment continues, but transformed by Christ from the Sabbath into the Lord's Day. If you had to put your finger on the one commandment that you think the American church is ignoring or violating or overlooking the most, what would it be? Well, I almost have to think in two there, but certainly the command that we are not to covet runs directly against uh, so much of mainstream American culture, which is built upon coveting. Your neighbor has one of those, you need one. Uh, (laughs) You can't be happy until you have what she has. Uh, Coveting is, uh, is a desire to have something that belongs to another. Now, you can say our entire consumer society is based upon that in one sense, And, uh, of course, the very heart of coveting is a wrongful desire. So, you know, desiring a a new shirt is not necessarily coveting. But that becoming an obsession of the heart is coveting. And I I think that's where we don't use that that verb to covet very often. I, I think a lot of our children, young people, and a lot of adults, frankly, don't have an idea what it is. Maybe if we use the word as we should, we'd have a better grasp of the of the commandment itself, don't you think? Absolutely. And again, that's a part of our biblical vocabulary. I think, if I just may say, the other commandment that I see grossly violated in our day is that we are to honor our father and mother, which doesn't just mm-hmm. mean obey mom and dad as a child. It does mean that. But it means that we are to honor in a positive way uh, the generations that have come before us, and, and we're to take care of our parents. And uh, yes. that's something else that is now very much a crisis in the United States. We're talking today with Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our focus, words from the fire, hearing the voice of God in the Ten Commandments. What do you think it would take in Christian circles for us to return to a proper sense of the elevated position the Ten Commandments deserve? Well, I think from time to time, they need to be read in our worship. They they certainly need to be taught to our children. And, uh, you know, if you walked into a lot of uh, church buildings, Protestant gospel church buildings in, say, the 19th century, then you would have seen, usually, the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments emblazoned on a wall. 
and uh, therefore the entire congregation to see. I was just recently, pre-COVID, I was uh, just recently at uh, the church, uh, St. Mary Walmouth, uh, there in London, where John Newton, the uh, author of Amazing Grace, was pastor. And, and right there as the congregation sat were these two giant calligraphy plaques on the wall behind the pulpit, the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. Very, very Protestant. Holding it up for everyone to see. Well, what would it take, if it's possible, for our culture at large to regain at least a token respect for the Ten Commandments? What would even interest them at this point, or are we too far down the river? You know, I think uh, we have to start with the Church, first of all, with Christian parents teaching their children, and with Christian churches teaching their people. And then we can try to help our society understand that there has to be something behind our law. I mean, when our law says murder is homicide and is a crime, well, where does that come from? Why is it a crime? Why is stealing a crime? Why uh, do we have a basis of law? How is it that the law shows up written on human hearts, uh, culture by culture, country by country, generation by generation? Uh, We're living in a society that wants to exist only by positive law, that is, human law that is constructed according to human wisdom. But uh, there are severe limits to positive law trying to be established on a cloud, has to be established on something absolute, yeah. and uh, the absolute is God's law. If there's one small step you would encourage followers of Jesus to take, how would we respond to the message of this book? By preaching the Ten Commandments, loving the Ten Commandments, learning the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and incorporating them into our thinking, what we rightly call our worldview. That's just really, really important. What we call our worldview is the way we think about the world. And, uh, and everything in it. And if that's not guided by Scripture and uh, within the Scripture, the Ten Commandments, then uh, we're going to go astray. Yeah. Well, our time has certainly gone way too quickly. Thanks for the conversation, Dr. Moeller. It's always good to be with you, and uh, it's always fun to talk about the Ten Commandments. Words from the Fire from Moody Publishers, a link at our website. Dr. Charlie Dyer is next on The Land and the Book. Some of us are just born curious. If you're curious, you ask questions. Charlie, I have a confession. Um, When our kids were in high school, they began to get irritated by my many, many incessant questions. In fact, one of them finally said to me, Dad, do you have to ask so many questions? But I don't think asking questions is a bad thing, is it? No, in fact, it's uh, quite the opposite. It's very good. And I suspect as your kids got older, uh, they recognized the, uh, the importance of those questions that you asked and probably are following in your footsteps. I bet they might just be. Well, your questions are what this segment is about on The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer, a former pastor, a former seminary professor, now with us on The Land and the Book, is glad to take those questions anytime. And we'll start with Victoria's. She says, being that I'm a Gentile who reads both the Old Testament and the New Testament, how do I know which Old Testament verses apply to me? In other words, when it says, for instance, in Isaiah 40, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How do I know this is for me as a Gentile? Or let's go to Jeremiah 29. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. How do I know as a Christian that the Lord would imply that this is true for me? 
Well, that's a great question. In fact, uh, as a teacher, I love those kind of questions because that's what forces us into the text. Now, I start by looking at the specific context of the passage. You know, to whom was it spoken and what were the specific historical circumstances? For example, Jeremiah 29, 11, that was spoken by God to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. In the previous verse, God told them they would be there for 70 years before being allowed to return home from exile. But then God promises that he does have a future for them and that they will be allowed to return home once the time of exile is over. So verse 11 is a wonderful promise, but I'm not sure if we want to take it as a direct application to our lives unless we're prepared to go into some time of trouble for 70 years first. (laughs) That leads to the main way we can use the Old Testament. I think we first need to understand the verse in context, know what's being said, to whom it's being said, and then look for the universal principle from the verse. What does it say that was true back then, but that is also true today? We're not under the Mosaic law in the sense that we need to follow the dietary laws or offer animal sacrifices, but we can still learn a great deal from the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus teaches us about God's holiness, and Numbers gives practical examples of sins to avoid and how to stand for God. So look for the overarching principles that are taught in the text and that are still true for today. And in that sense, it is good to read the Old Testament and find those principles because God has something in there for us today. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Your questions are welcome anytime at The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. Jim wants to know, could you please give a quick tutorial on the term Palestine and the Palestinians? How did that term arise? Has it morphed in meaning? And Palestinians, of course, are claiming the land because they say it's theirs. But was it ever truly their land? Yeah, that's a great question, so let me try and follow through. Uh, Originally, the term Palestine was coined by Hadrian after the second Jewish revolt against Roma, a hundred years after the time of Jesus. He wanted to wipe out all Jewish aspects of the land, so he changed the name of the capital city from Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina. He changed the name of the country from Judea to Palestina, uh, which really meant Philistine land. He was naming it after the people group that had disappeared from history by that time. Uh, The name Palestine, in this sense, was primarily a geographical designation, and it stuck. You know, if you read the accounts of travelers in the 1700s and 1800s, they said they were in Palestine. In fact, the major Jewish newspaper in Jerusalem, it's today called the Jerusalem Post, but back then it was called the Palestine Post, referring to the land area, not to a specific people group. Today, the name's taken on an ethnic and political dimension. Uh, It's used to refer to the Arab population of the region who aren't citizens of Israel, and it's used to refer to a possible future state for those people. Now, that came about especially when the UN voted back in 1947 to petition the land of Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. The Jewish state came into being, but the Arab state didn't. Israel had agreed to the petition. It was the Arab states that refused to accept that UN partition decision. Now, I try and exercise caution in using the name Palestine. My preference is that when referring to the land during the biblical period, I'll talk about Canaan or Israel or Judah or Judea or whatever other historical designation fits the appropriate biblical period. I think it's okay to use Palestine to refer to the area from the time of Hadrian through the early 1900s since that was its geographical name. I do take issues with writers who talk about Jesus's ministry in Palestine. When they do, they're using the term anachronistically, uh, since it wasn't Palestine in the time of Jesus. And I'm cautious about using the term today. There is currently not a country of Palestine. 
the people who live there, they may have called themselves Palestinians, but that wasn't a designation for those individuals up until very recent times. Uh, There might someday be a state of Palestine, but it doesn't exist now. Alan and Esther Baldwin write, My wife and I love to listen to your radio program on the Internet. And Revelation chapters 21 and 22 refer to the nations. Uh, In Revelation 21 verses 24 and 26, the text refers to the nations as going in and out of the new Jerusalem. So who are the nations in the new heaven and the new earth? Yeah, we're not directly told who those nations are, though. I think it's referring to the redeemed of all ages. Uh, The word for nations is ethnos, and it doesn't refer to nations in the sense we normally use that word today. Uh, It refers to different ethnic and racial groups. What we do know is that there will be positions of power given to redeemed individuals as part of their reward for having faithfully served the Lord. So I believe the verse is probably referring to those followers of Jesus. Now, the real question, will we be able to leave the new Jerusalem to travel on the new earth? Well, we're not told, but I'm assuming from that verse that we will. In essence, the new earth will be all that God intended his original creation to be. So we'll likely have access to this earthly paradise that he'll create. But again, there is so much we're not told. But I do know this, we'll definitely be surprised when we finally see everything God has prepared for his children, including our dwelling in the new Jerusalem and the new earth that he has created. I love these questions we're entertaining today on The Land and the Book, like this one from Danny. He says, I was doing some study on the judgment seat of Christ and came across an article that stated, only believers since the day of Pentecost will be judged at the Bema judgment. What is your viewpoint of what the Bible says on this topic? Will all believers before and after Jesus be present? Yeah, well, the judgment seat described by Paul is actually mentioned in three passages. It's Romans 14, and in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, and 2 Corinthians 5. And Paul says in those passages, we will all stand before God's Bema seat to give an account of what we've done and that God will test the quality of each man's works. Uh, He makes it clear that the judgment is of believers, and it's not about eternal salvation. Uh, That's already settled once someone places his or her faith in Christ. Now, I assume the Bema Seat judgment is for believers in this age and not for believers in other ages, though uh, my support for that is, frankly, a little bit slim. You know, in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, Daniel describes the final time of judgment prior to the coming of God's kingdom, and he pictures a time of distress for Israel that's worse than anything ever experienced up till now. And then he describes what will happen afterward. He says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So he places the resurrection and judgment after that period of trouble. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the first resurrection and second resurrections are separated by a thousand years. Uh, So the rapture of the church saints occurs prior to the time of trouble. Putting all that together, uh, I see the rapture followed by the Bema Seat judgment for church-age believers. Uh, That's going to be followed by the resurrection and reward of the Old Testament and tribulation saints when Jesus returns to earth at the start of his kingdom. And then that's followed by the resurrection and great white throne judgment, uh, the eternal punishment of all the unsaved of all ages after the millennial kingdom. One last question from Debbie. She says, are the 12 stones that the Lord ordered taken out of the Jordan River to be set up by Joshua at Gilgal still there? Yeah. You know, what I'd love to say is, yes, they are. Uh, And and I'm sure at some point, if you wanted to know where they are, some uh, guide would take you there. But the reality (laughs) is those stones aren't visible today. Uh, When the writer said they were still visible in his day, in in, uh, 
the book of Joshua. Uh, the notation was probably added shortly after Joshua had finished writing the book. Someone else, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that final section of the book describing Joshua's death, and that same individual likely added that historical note about the stones being still visible. Now, the Israelites entered the land around 1405. Uh, we don't know Joshua's exact age at that time, but it's likely that he was 80 to 85 years old. He died when he was 110, so probably this historical detail was added shortly after his death. That would be 25 to 30 years after the crossing of the Jordan. Well, that's a fairly long time for a pile of stones to remain in place. But the countless floods over the remaining 3,500 years have washed away any remaining trace. Still, Charlie, in my uh, sanctified imagination, I like to imagine that, you know, just in the amusement of God, once in a while, maybe some of those stones are, are still around somewhere and we just, you know, wouldn't know it if we saw it. That's right. All right. Well, coming up next on The Land of the Book, stick around. Charlie's devotional is next. Thanks for joining us on this edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and got a question for you. What would you guess is the typical tourist's very favorite spot on a trip to Israel? We're about to find out in Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up. First, though, this Holy Land experience from someone who has been to Israel and shares this perspective with you and me right now. To see the nomads, the Bedouins, they have now settled down. But their life is not a whole lot easier than it was back 2,000 years. The women are still weaving goat's hair for their tents. They still sleep on the ground on mats. Yes, a water truck comes and brings water to the goats and sheep. But other than that, their lifestyle really has not changed. And to have that visual of how our spiritual ancestors had lived... It took almost their entire energy just to live. We have too many switches and buttons and gadgets that we can make ourselves warm, make ourselves cold, make ourselves something to eat or drink. And that whole Bedouin lifestyle is overwhelming to even think about. It's a scene in the New Testament that uh, has me wondering sometimes. I try and process all that happened in the 17th chapter of Matthew. But uh, with that, I'm going to turn things over to you, Charlie, and uh, get your perspective on the transfiguration. Ask the typical tourist to name his or her favorite spot on a trip to Israel, and the results are fairly predictable. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden Tomb, The sites on tourists' top ten list usually have two things in common. First, most are connected in some way with the life of Jesus. And second, they're not totally obscured by a church or a religious shrine. The sites preserve some sense of what it might have looked like when the events of the Bible took place there. And that's why we're standing today at the far northern edge of Israel on the Golan Heights, We've come here for a panoramic view of Mount Hermon, which is a likely candidate for the Mount of Transfiguration. Mount Hermon is not the traditional site of the Mount of Transfiguration. That honor belongs to Mount Tabor. But while Mount Tabor is majestic in its own right, it was several centuries before church tradition associated it with the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And that brings us back to Mount Hermon. At the base of Mount Hermon is where the city of Caesarea Philippi stood. In Matthew and Mark, the transfiguration is said to take place six days after Peter's amazing confession at Caesarea Philippi. Luke says the event happened about eight days later. While some see that as an error in the Bible, John MacArthur doesn't believe it's a contradiction at all. He says Luke merely bookended the six days by adding the day Peter made his confession as well as the actual day of the transfiguration. And while the time between Peter's confession and the Mount of Transfiguration is sufficient to walk a great distance, each of the three synoptic Gospels connects the two events. Luke says the Transfiguration took place on a mountain, but Matthew and Mark both add that it was a high mountain. So how high are the mountains in the area? Well, while Mount Tabor rises to a respectable 1,850 feet, Mount Hermon at over 9,000 feet towers above every other mountain in Israel. On a clear day, Mount Hermon can be seen from the Sea of Galilee, 40 miles away. That's a high mountain. Imagine being one of the three disciples up on the mountain with Jesus. It sounds exciting, special, like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but that's looking at it after the fact. Frankly, the three disciples were worn out and tired. Luke delicately puts it this way. As the transfiguration began, the three disciples were very sleepy. I suspect they had started to nod off and were roused back to consciousness when they somehow realized Jesus was talking with some visitors. The first thing they noticed as they awakened was the remarkable change in Jesus' appearance. Matthew says his face shone like the sun, while his clothes became as white as the light. Mark said his clothing was dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Luke said his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. The writers are struggling to find illustrations that describe what the disciples saw. Staring at Jesus was like trying to look directly into the sun. He was totally engulfed by a brightness radiating from within that was blinding in its brilliance. These disciples caught a glimpse of Jesus in all his heavenly glory, Uh, the same glory Jesus later said the world will someday see at his second coming. Two figures appeared beside Jesus, and they're identified as Moses and Elijah. How did the disciples know who they were? Obviously, they weren't wearing name tags. Hello, I'm Moses, or my name is Elijah. And no paintings or pictures existed of either man. So how did they know who they were? Well, very likely the disciples knew because Jesus addressed them by name. Imagine seeing Jesus in his heavenly splendor and then listening to a conversation between Jesus and arguably the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And what were they talking about? Luke says, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The focus of the conversation was the coming crucifixion, Jesus' death in Jerusalem to pay for the sins of the world. And it was at this point that Peter defaulted to his classic response mechanism. Open your mouth and say the first thing that comes to mind. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark and Luke add that Peter said this out of sheer fright because he didn't know what else to say. Think about this. Moses was the great Old Testament prophet who had announced that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
though in doing so the serpent would strike at his heel. And Elijah was the prophet whom Malachi said would appear before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes on the earth. Both men were now standing in front of the disciples discussing the central prophetic event in all history, an event that was about to take place in Jerusalem. And Peter responds by suggesting they start a building program. Why did Peter want to build three booths? Some think it was to provide shelter for the three men now in front of him, perhaps to keep them in place and keep the conversation going. But Luke adds a detail that makes this unlikely. He said Peter made the suggestion as the men were leaving. They were already on their way back to heaven when Peter suggested building the booths. A second possibility is that Peter wanted to build a memorial to commemorate the event that had just taken place. Certainly, it's in our human nature to want to build memorials to commemorate historic events. Look at all the shrines and monuments we've built over the years. In fact, I remember Peter's words every time I visit the churches built on top of sacred sites throughout the Holy Land. They're shrines built by well-intentioned people who, like Peter, wanted to memorialize key events in Bible history. But there is a third possibility why Peter wanted to build the three booths. The Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, was a feast that looked toward the final regathering of Israel and the inauguration of the kingdom. Zechariah the prophet predicted a time when the survivors from all the nations will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Perhaps Peter wanted to build the booths to commemorate this time of glory that he was certain must be coming soon. But if that's the case, Peter missed the point. He and all the disciples kept looking for the kingdom while Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about the cross. God had to interrupt Peter by telling him, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Peter got so wrapped up in the vision and in his grandiose plans that he missed the content of the message being discussed. And that might be the best lesson we can take from this amazing experience on Mount Hermon. We need to keep our focus on Jesus. Instead of trying to help him out with our efforts, let's pay closer attention to what the Bible says about him, who he is, what he's done, and what he has said he will do in the future. God announced from heaven that Jesus is his beloved son. Let's pause what we're doing and listen to what he has to say. You know, that's a good reminder, isn't it? Dr. Charlie Dyer with today's devotional. You know, we would uh, welcome an email from you hearing how God is using the program in your life. Maybe there's an insight that has opened for you, a window of understanding as you've listened to The Land and the Book. Why not share that with a quick email? You can write to us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. As always, your questions are welcome. Those questions can be emailed to the land and the book at moody.edu as well. And if you'd like to hear today's program again, you can head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Giger on behalf of co-producer Dan Anderson and our host Charlie Dyer. We hope you'll join us again next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.